So dear friend, welcome, welcome. Nice to be with you here again. And I hope that uh, you are benefiting your practice, your meditation in daily life is benefiting from uh, this retreat, benefiting from joining with the guided meditation of Tony, morning and evening, benefiting of course from the session with Gina in the afternoon. And so we were very happy that the connection was slightly better yesterday with Gina. Of course, we had a little tiny bit of kind of freezing with the audio a little bit, but we felt it was so nice to see Gina that the interruption was so sure it was worth seeing her kind of, you know, talking to us. So that's why we did not move to just audio. And I hope that this afternoon, it will be a, a little better, hopefully. And so today, I would like to look at uh, another two of the paramis. The first one is uh, determination. And the second one, and this is a practice I would like to guide this morning, is around equanimity. And so determination, and this is an important quality when we practice, when we walk the path, because it's in a way you have, it kind of help with the energy. And it's not just kind of like we have this determination and it's very important on the path. And in the practice where I was trained first in Korea, in Seoul, they have this beautiful way to, in a way, look at a determination. And they actually called it great courage. And so in a way they said that when you practice, you need to have this great courage. And then when I thought about great courage, I would think, for example, of my teacher, Kuzan uh, Sunim, when he kind of, because one of the things in Korea is they sit so much that they really can sleep very easily when they sit. And he was so determined that he really wanted to awaken, to have a breakthrough, to help a friend, that he slept so much sitting that he decided, I am really going to be determined. I'm going to have great courage. And then in order not to sleep on the cushion for 15 days, he stood up on his tiptoe with his hand like this, meditating. I mean, not nonstop, but like, you know, he would do it like kind of, you know, 15 minutes and then he would walk a bit and again he would do it. And he said, the first two hours were a little tough just to kind of stand on your tiptoe, you know, for 50 minutes at a time. But he said he just was so thinking about his friend and wanted so much to have a breakthrough for the sake of his friend that he just did this 15 days of really standing on his tiptoe. And he actually did have a breakthrough in the end. And so, but why did he do it? Nobody forced him to do it. You see, because determination, often you think, you know, you, I must force myself. I think often people see determination a little bit like New Year resolution. So they know the translation, 
of uh, determination is resolution. And so you hear about all these New Year resolution, I will stop eating this, I will do more exercise, I will stop this, I will stop that. And generally, you, need some, you have the resolution, but you don't do it or it doesn't last very long. And because here what you have is what I would call forcing, it's not great courage. Great courage comes out of inspiration. Or once I met this nun uh, in Korea, and she really had such a presence, such a presence. I thought, you know, she must be special, so I asked, you know. And they said, oh, she was 10 years in silence. And when you think of us, when we go on a seven-day retreat, and we think, oh, silent for seven days. And she was in silence for 10 years, and only once or twice a year talking with her teacher. And then, of course, she stopped, because the silence was not and then in itself, was just a means to practice with dedication, with great courage, with determination. And again, nobody forced her to do it. She, nobody else did this. It was just her having this inspiration. And then I was thinking, but for us, I don't think we need to stand on tiptoe for days or days. Or I don't think it would be possible in our life. All that we've been silent for many years. I don't think that's what required of us. But then the question would be, what is great courage in connection to my meditation? What is great courage in connection to meditation in daily life? And to me, great courage there, great determination, is actually, can I have the courage to go beyond my habit? This is a thing, can we have the courage to go beyond our habit? Because in a way, we kind of, we used to it, you know, often you have this phrase, I can't help it. You do the same mistake, you say the wrong thing again. I can't help it. You know, I cannot help myself. So in a way, one could merely say that meditation we need great courage to do meditation, but meditation is going to help us to have great courage in actually seeing through our habits or actually having the determination not again to be swept by our habits. A little bit what I did, I was telling about daydreaming, how I did it so much, but once I decided to really have the great courage and not to give in to the impulse. But the great courage doesn't happen overnight. It took me many years to actually understand the habit. And once I understood the habit, then I could have the great courage. So in a way I would say, we cultivate great courage. We try to have the determination. We try to not be caught in our habits, mental, physical, emotional, relational. And at the same time, the meditation, I feel, help us to develop this great determination at the same time, this great courage, so that we can see our habits. And I think if we really see our habits, then actually within our practice, I think there is a mechanism that we develop the power of what I call 
creative meditative awareness or creative mindfulness. So in a way, what we're doing is that we meditate, which need to have great courage to sit there, to come back again and again, to be aware of change again and again. And that helps us to become bright and calm. And then that we can say to what's going on. And then over time, what do we meditate actually? To build, you could say, great determination, great courage, which actually becomes power. And in a way, what we're developing when we meditate, I would say is a power of creative awareness, the courage of creative awareness. So you could say one of the manifestation of creative awareness is courage in terms of our habit. And I saw it happen once. Like I used to do the same thing. If somebody hurt me, I would totally freeze them, ignore them for days on end since I was a young child basically as a mean of survival to protect me from bad stuff. And so I did this, you know, and as I meditated, I did this mm-hmm. lesson long. So it was kind of a short Until one day, a friend of mine, living Can you hear me now? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I, uh... thank you. So, Sorry about that, folks. Totally sorry. I had not put in my special microphone, which is uh, very good. And then I totally forgot to put my microphone. I'm extremely sorry about that. Okay, so I'll continue. I'll continue. And uh, okay. Uh, so I was talking about how I saw the power. In a way, you could say that we're developing in meditation the power of creative awareness. And so I used to have that habit to freeze people when they had hurt me, to ignore them. Uh, When I was young, weeks at a time, after meditation, a few days at a time. And then one day, somebody said something to hurt me. And then the next morning, I saw in the kitchen, we were living in community, And in that moment, I could feel the survival mechanism, the habit coming in of, I have to protect myself, I'm going to freeze her, I'm going to freeze her. But instead of that, as I went toward the kitchen and I could hear her, something within me, what I would call the power of creative awareness, the courage, the determination to practice. I didn't have power to make me ask, but do I need to do this? Do I need to repeat this? Can I do something else? And what was interesting is that talking about living fearlessly, at that moment, there was a great fear I have never done anything different before. How can I do something different? How can I do something I have never done before? And that's why I realized, in a way, why we need great courage. It's because of fear. It's the fear of doing something different. 
because we get so comfortable, even if it's painful, with doing what we've done before. And then I could see the power of the creative awareness giving me the courage to say, this time, I am going to do something different. So I entered the kitchen, I smiled at her, I did not shut her off at all, I just smiled. And then there was this immense relief, immense peace. And I thought, why did not I do this before? And after that, I never did it again because I realized then how uncompassionate my reaction had been. And because of that, I could not do anymore. So I had to find a different creative way to engage with that. And so in a way, to see that the great determination is in order to help us to go beyond the fear, beyond the fear which comes from just becoming in a way comfortable with our habits, even our harmful habit. So in a way, you could say that coming back from being distracted or for being, coming back from being self-involved is a moment of great determination is a moment of great courage. Or when we think, oh, maybe I could do something different this time. Again, this is great courage, great determination. And then I wanted to talk about the second paramin. I wanted to talk in your second parami uh, about the second. I'm, I'm uh, just getting confused because uh, Josie uh, is saying something about the recording, and I presume Tony is taking care of that. Uh, so I cannot say anything about the recording, and I hope it's going okay. <laughs> now that we have the sound which is working okay. Okay, everything is okay now, it seems. Uh, so, yeah, equanimity. So, equanimity is one of the parameters. And personally, I think it's very important to talk about equanimity because we can have such strange idea about equanimity. I have the feeling that often we feel that the meditation is about, at some point, uh, kind of getting on this little cloud of equanimity, which will be, will be on this little cloud, like a little boat in the sky, and nothing, nothing whatsoever will bother us ever again. So I'm on my little cloud. People are suffering down there, but I mean, sorry about it. You know, work on and maybe you'll get two on your little cloud of equanimity. You know, me, I'm okay. But really, equanimity is really not indifference. It is not about separation. It is not never again reacting. We are human beings. We are a living organism. So what we're trying is in a way to diminish the reaction. We're trying to diminish the selfishness. We're trying to diminish the agitation. But this is not a program of eradication. It's really, as I said yesterday, a program of wisdom, a program of understanding. Again, as Gina was saying, 
understanding the conditions. And so looking at equanimity, one phrase you hear a lot about, which often is equated with equanimity, is be we think as they are. I find that phrase interesting. I'm sorry, every time I hear be we think as they are now, I get a little reaction. <laughs> because you can interpret it in two ways. Metaphysical way, I'm not going to go there now. Or it's saying just be equanimous. No matter what happens, just be there, just be with it. But actually, that's not what this says. You see, this is, you know, you have this kind of late motif, you have this kind of sentence we've become like everybody talks about, you know, be with things as they are, trying to be with things as they are. And actually, it's quite a complicated Pali sentence, actually. I am not going to spell it out. It's too long. But on the notice board, I will uh, put it up. And so it's, Yatam, Buddham, Bhutam, Nyanya Dasana. That's what this refers to, this be we think as they are. Yatam, Bhutam, Nyanya Dasana. And what does this mean? This means actually know and see things how they come to be, how they arise. So actually, this is not static. This is not just about being there and not doing anything and not reacting. This is really about know and see things as they come to be, as they arise. So in a way, it's kind of like, to me, one translation I would give to it is creatively engaging with experiences, that it be inner experiences, outer experiences. So in a way, what we have to be careful is that kind of we equate equanimity with acceptance, but as resignation. Actually not. This is not about resignation. This actually is acceptance, but an acceptance which gives clarity. So actually the acceptance is not saying, well, that's the way it is, can't be held, can't do anything about it. It's actually an acceptance which leads us to interact, to explore everything that is going on. So in a way, we don't take it at face value. We explore its aspect. And what is very interesting, in one text, equanimity in one text, in one of the early sutta, the Buddha equate equanimity with gold, with pure gold, which is malleable and brilliant. So here we don't, I mean, I know in some texts they say you must be like a piece of wood or like a rock. Personally, I think this metaphor are a little dangerous. But I think this is a beautiful metaphor. And actually, equanimity is us being like pure gold, malleable, and bright. Because what is also interesting is also often equanimity is actually associated with neutral feeling tone. So you have the tonality, Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, -A, 
So you have pleasant tonality, unpleasant tonality. I mentioned this a little yesterday. And then you have what is called neither, neither pleasant nor unpleasant tonality. And you could translate, I mean, say for sure, neutral. And so often the neutral tonality is in a way equated in the text with equanimity, actually. But what we have to be careful of is that then we think of neutrality again as indifference. When neutrality, what is very interesting in terms of neutral feeling tone, a nun in the, at the time of the Buddha said, if you understand neutral tonality, then actually it can become pleasant. If you don't understand neutral tonality, it can become unpleasant. So that's why neutrality is kind of like something we can shift at one level. But personally, I also think it can be like a baseline that we go up, pleasant zero to 10, we go down, unpleasant zero to 10, but we cannot stay up and down all the time. And then we have in a way the baseline, which is a little neutral. And then you could think of it more as restful or as in balance. And then in the text, they look at neutral feeling tone in one of the sutta in two ways. The Buddha says you have ordinary neutral feeling tone. And he also says you have ordinary equanimity. And ordinary equanimity or feeling tone is who cares, doesn't bother me, I don't mind. And that, I would say, could be qualified as indifference. But he said the equanimity we're trying to develop, in a way you could call it bright equanimity, elevated equanimity. And he says it comes actually out of insight. <clears throat> in a way, totally connect with wisdom. And so the Buddha in the text said that actually these elevated, bright equanimity come from understanding the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and conditionality. And then through that, you have that bright, malleable equanimity. So I think it's kind of very important to kind of when we look at equanimity, we see it actually, I would say, as a creative function. At one level, it's a resting function because there is some, it's characterized by stability, by groundedness, by calm. But not only by that, it is also characterized by, by balance. But balance doesn't mean that you are equilibrated all the time. Balance means that you can come back to balance. This, I think, is very important to see. Balance is about coming back to balance so that you go one way, you go the other, but you can come back in the middle. Recently, I read a text where they equated actually equanimity with the middle way. And I would actually quite agree there thinking of equanimity as the middle way. 
and also the fact that we can come back to the middle ground. We can come back to a certain balance. And then the last point about equanimity I want to mention is actually a very important part of it. And it's treating people equally. And in daily life, this is such a hard practice. But even when we sit on our cushion, in a way, can I treat whatever arises equally? Is it possible? You see, to see that this is an exercise. Of course, we're not going to treat person who is kind to us and somebody who is attacking us in the same manner, of course. But in a way, when we think about treating equally, personally, I would connect it to self-interest. That sometimes, out of self-interest, we will treat somebody better and out of self-interest, somebody lesser. I mean, I, in the early day of my teaching, I had a lot of these experiences, which personally I found very funny. That because at the time I was very kind of a low, lowly teacher, let's say. I was not known, nobody knew me, etc. neither Stephen. In a way, when we were in this big meeting, nobody talked to us and really, kind of, we were not interesting people. And then other people kind of like Ramdas and all that, you know, everybody kind of, you know, would talk to them. And then they would be surprised if Ramdas talked to us, you know, why are they talking to these insignificant people? But that's another story. But now that, you know, I'm kind of a little older and a little more known, then it's suddenly people are more talking to me. And me, I think, but I am the same person. I am not different. And to me, this is really something I try to do in, in my life. Can I treat people equally, you know, and not in terms of their status or in terms of my self-interest or in terms, of course, in the, as I said, aggressive or whatever, you want to protect yourself. But to me, I think this is such a hard practice. But I think it's really in terms of connectedness, in terms of, Compassion, I think this is such an important practice. Part of equanimity, can I treat people equally? And then in terms of the meditation, this is also a challenge. Can I treat whatever arises equally? Can I bring the same friendliness to it? Can I bring the same courage to it? This is, I'm not saying this is an easy practice, but I think it's an interesting one in a way to consider. So to finish with, I'd just like to, to say uh, that um, now we're going to do the guided meditation. And so what I want to do in the guided meditation is use some phrases like we would use for meta meditation, for example, but I am not going to use the traditional equanimity phrases because I am not too keen on them, I'm sorry. <laughs> then you have the modern phrases like uh, Jack Cornfield suggests. Again, I'm sorry, I'm not too keen on them. <laughs> so what I do when I'm not too keen on phrases, I invent my own. So if you want to use the phrases you used to and you feel is very useful for you, please do that. Personally, uh, what I would suggest or would offer 
in terms of what we're going to do shortly is accepting things as they arise or creatively accepting things as they arise. Creatively engaging with things as they arise. Being balanced, being stable. Also, I know that in terms of like meta-meditation, not everybody likes to use phrases. Because some people, they use phrases and then suddenly it makes their mind go faster or agitated. Or some people feel the phrases are a little artificial. So, in terms of that, you can also connect to experience. And I will guide you there. Or you can connect to the quality. So this is what I want to do during the guided meditation. So I'm so pleased that we managed to sort out the microphone and hopefully the recording and now we're going to do the meditation. And so if we can just stand and stretch a little and then we'll sit for the meditation. So if we find a comfortable posture, the back is straight. The shoulders are open. The head is resting lightly on the shoulders. Of course, we can also be standing or lying down. We try to cultivate equanimity also through the posture. Developing groundedness through the posture. Being stable, grounded, just like a mountain. But also that openness, that spaciousness. Sitting also open like the ocean. So in this posture, finding stability and balance together. And then we can bring these phrases, use these phrases, 
reciting them internally, silently, all four of them or one, whichever, whatever suits you. Accepting things as they arise. Seeing and knowing things as they arise. Creatively engaging with things as they arise. That it be sought feelings, sensations, sounds. Being balanced, being stable. Accepting things as they arise. Seeing and knowing thoughts as they arise. Creatively engaging with sensations as they arise. Being stable. Being balanced.
it is not so useful to use phrases. We could connect to experience. What is it I can accept now? Can I accept this thought, this feeling, this sensation right now? Can I creatively engage? with whatever sound I hear right now. Can I experience some stability right now? Can I experience some balance right now? Or we could turn toward the quality. How does it feel when we accept things as they arise? 
How does it feel when we see and know things as they arrive? How does it feel to creatively engage? How does it feel balanced? How does it feel to be stable, grounded? And I find, experience some stability and balance. Just being aware of the breath. The natural soothing, soothing rhythm of the breath.
And we find stability and balance in the body, in the point of contact, the feet on the ground, the seat sitting on the chair, the hands on each other. One way to explore neither pleasant nor unpleasant tonality is through contact. Possibly contact of the hand on each other, contact of the clothes on the body. Not much happening. Just contact. How do we experience that neutral tonality, neither pleasant nor unpleasant?
Now being aware of the tonality of mindfulness itself. When we are aware, mindful, in a caring, stable way, balanced way, what a tonality of that experience. Do we notice that quality of mindfulness, which is equanimous, which is like pure gold, malleable and bright?
So I can see there is a, already a question. Ah, there is one question first that to address. Tina yesterday asked about, uh, in terms of relating wisdom to listening meditation, is a wisdom in terms of the awareness of sound. And actually the wisdom was in terms of being aware of the changing nature of sound. Uh, that's what we were trying to do in terms of the listening meditation. That's what we were kind of trying to use the listening of the sound to really be aware first of the changing nature, sound coming and going, or if they continue changing within themselves. But then of course, in terms of the wisdom of listening to sound, then there is a wisdom in terms of noticing tonality upon contact with a sound. And then maybe noticing uh, kind of like does, when the sound goes, does the tonality go? So again, noticing also uh, the changing nature in terms of uh, the tonality. And then there is a little bit about the perception how we perceive sound, how we assume certain things, and then we'll have, again, certain tonality. And so, in a way, the wisdom of seeing that in the experience. So that's the way I would uh, connect the two. Then, uh, uh, was asking, he's asking, can I speak a little more about creative awareness? So again, uh, creative awareness uh, is actually, <laughs> Not in the text, not in the early text. I checked with my great friend and scholar, uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Analayo, and he said there is no such a thing. So I thought, well, never mind. I can uh, personally, I think, use the term. I think it's kind of a useful thing. Why do I talk about creative awareness? It's because it seems to me that when we cultivate meditation, we're not just cultivating awareness or mindfulness or attention, just like in being a radar. It seems to me that sometimes we confuse mindfulness, awareness, attention as a mean to be like a kind of a, a video camera or like a kind of like a radar that actually our job is to actually just be aware, like, aware of everything to the same degree and that this is aim of the object uh, of the exercise and i would say not personally i don't think this is the aim of the exercise i mean you can buy a video camera it's much more kind of efficacious same as a radar it's much more efficacious i don't think this is the aim of the exercise the aim of the exercise is actually the anchoring and by anchoring, we come back again and again to functioning. But it's not just any functioning. We come back to a creative functioning. And then by cultivating, looking deeply again, we move from being fixated to I feel much more creative. So I see, in a way, the meditation, the anchoring, the looking deeply, the samatha, the vipassana, as mean to dissolve habituation. And so if you dissolve habituation, automatic reaction, you're not left just with a radar or a video recording. You're actually left with 
creative potentiality. So it seems to me that meditation is to remove the obstacle to our creative potential. And so again and again, my experience has been that we don't just develop an awareness which become like a mirror reflecting everything, but actually we develop a creative awareness which helps us in way to see things anew, to see things afresh, to allow for creative possibility. And one good example of that, I would say, and, it, and that's why I think listening meditation is really essential, is for us in daily life to do what I call meditative listening. Because when we listen, generally, what do we do? Either we wait for the person to stop so we can say something so much more interesting, or we look in the right direction, but we're not listening, so we have not heard what the person said, or we overreact by grasping on what the person said. But if we don't do any of these three things, and we really just listen, totally listen in that moment to the person, when the person stops, you say something generally creative you've never said before, not a stock phrase, not a kind of an habitual thing, but something which is really relevant to the encounter. And I have seen this again and again and again. And so that's why personally, I think what we cultivate is actually we allow this creative awareness to have more and more power, to have more and more determination, courage. I think that's what happened with the practice. When we sit, generally not much happened, but actually by the sitting, we dissolve habituation. And so what is interesting in the sitting or lying down or standing formal meditation is that at the end, generally you have a little, like a little releasing. And I think the releasing is a releasing of the fixity of the habituation which then allow for this creative possibility of this kind of freshness, really kind of creatively responding to what is going on, as Gina was pointing out yesterday. Then, uh, can, uh, what do you mean by tonality? Tonality, I could go on for hours. This is one of my favorite subjects, uh, because I think this is what we, basically, we have so much automatic reaction around that. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just so survival mechanism, evolution, and then experiences. So tonality comes from the term Vedana, which is a Pali term, V-E-D-A-N-A. If you're really interested in this, in Dharma Seed, uh, where there are lots of talk, I give a kind of instruction, talk, and guided meditation on it, just on Vedana. And if you're really interested, I can send you, I can post an article, actually, if you want. I'll post an article on the notice board on Vedana. I think that may be the best. And so basically, Vedana, feel, feeling tone is just upon contact through the senses, thought included, there is a little tonality. And the best way to, for me to point it out is with color. And so, I mean, the Buddha said there is 108 tonalities, so I'm not going to go into all that. And he said there are three main ones, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the best way to notice that is with color. 
you see blue, uh, I see somebody wearing red, I see somebody wearing black, and I will have a little different reaction to red, to black, to blue. But I mean, you know, one will be a little more pleasant, one might be a little unpleasant or neutral. And I mean, a scholar does anything to me? No. But over time, you see, this is tonality is totally connected with perception and conditionality. Over time, our organism, for whatever reason, up, I like blue, I'm okay with black, I'm not sure about red or whatever, yellow, orange. Very interesting. How? And it's immediate. And then the tonality can become feeling sensation, then it can become emotion, then it can become complex emotion, then it can become disturbing emotion. But it's not just about emotion because it's also about, it has a mental aspect, it has a physical aspect. So it's a kind of a wide subject, but that's what I mean in short by tonality. But I'll put the article on the notice board and then it kind of, then I look in more detail. Can equanimity be associated with the word peace and peaceful? Yeah, I would say that, yeah, uh, within equanimity, there is actually this deep quality of calm. And you could call that peace, peaceful. But I think what I'm trying to say is that it's not just equanimity, it's not just calm, it's not just peace, because it would kind of give us the idea that, you know, it's all about peace and it's all about calm. But yes, one of the great quality, of course, of equanimity is that it helps us to experience uh, the peacefulness uh, so that we don't feel this agitation. We feel like really kind of, it's kind of like a relaxed feeling, like a feeling of being in the right place at the right time and you have no worry and no agitation and no stress and just, ah. And time to time we experience this deep calm, this deep peace. But I would say it's not just about that, but one aspect of course of it is peace. And so when often when we sit in meditation, we kind of have this moment of utter, ah, you know, being at peace with the world be at peace with ourselves. I'm interested in what you said about determination and courage in response to being hurt. I've always dealt with hurt feeling by creating negative repetitive argument in my head instead of speaking confronting the hurt of the person. Uh, do you have any advice for what might help with this in meditation? No, of course. I mean, this is part of the kind of uh, well, I'm so interested in tonality. As soon as we hurt, unpleasant tonality arise, and generally we react very fast to it because this is just kind of like survival mechanism. We have to be aware of danger very fast. We have to address it or protect ourselves and everything like that. And then, of course, when somebody we feel hurt, then generally, I mean, either, I mean, people are different. Uh, some people might be more aggressive, and so pah, you kind of, you know, sent it back. Often that's what we do. We are hurt ourselves, 
and then we sent it back. If, and then they sent it back, and then it's, uh, I mean, if we can help not doing that, it can be helpful, but sometimes you can't help yourself. But then you can see what happened when we hurt back, what happens? I think we can learn from all situations. Often we don't do this, and then it will be more like rumination. And so we can, will be continuously ruminating about what I should have said, what I should have said, what they should not have said, or what I should not have done, and if only, and sometimes we even plot revenge, something like that. And that, I think, is unavoidable. I think we have to be careful to understand that if we hurt, if it's light, we can let it go easily. If it's a little repetitive, we might try to understand what's going on here uh, with this person, you know, and how can I creatively engage with that? If it's intense, then of course you might want to avoid the person, not address it, and then you will have the thing go through you. I, mean, I think one has to accept, oh, I am just kind of ruminating about this because it was painful. And at the same time, we have to be careful with amplification. You see, the problem with confronting, speaking to the person is, is it possible? I mean, there is some people, you know, they hurt you. And at some point, if not there and then, you can try to speak with them about it. You can try to kind of bring more harmony to the situation. At the time, you have somebody who is hurting you. And then the question is, do I take it? In a way, you know, if somebody accuses you of something, then is it true or not? So again, kind of questioning, what am I doing with what was the hurting? And then if the person has hurt you repeatedly, then I mean, possibly you want to avoid them. You can try to speak to them, but sometimes you speak to them, it becomes worse. Sometimes you speak to them, it becomes a little better. This is tricky. And sometimes you would like the situation to be resolved. And sometimes you can't resolve the situation. That's really kind of uh, also difficult. And so in a way, what you have to be careful is also by yourself. That actually, if you have had some difficulty with somebody, and if they have hurt you and you're not living with them, let's say, but you're sitting there in your house and you're just keeping thinking about it, Actually, it doesn't do anything in terms of them. They're not hurt by you thinking about it. You, you're hurting yourself thinking about it. So in a way, it's kind of like with the help of the Dharma, with the help of the meditation, can you leave the hurt there and not continue to go over it because it will just amplify the unpleasant tonality. So it's not saying it's not hurtful, it's hurtful. But how can I help myself not to make it more hurtful? How in a way can I let it become impermanent? Can I creatively address the situation or not? Can I creatively accept it or not? But to be really careful, that when you go over and over of something which is painful, actually it is only hurting yourself and it is not hurting them whatsoever. 
So in a way, I would nearly say doing less of the rumination is actually having compassion for oneself. And so kind of thinking a little about it, and then as I said, with planning, leave it aside a bit. And then try to bring more pleasant experience so that then you can balance the unpleasant with that. That's what I would suggest. Then you talk about the power to say, do I need to do this in relationship to letting go of habit and determination? I found it easy to answer to the question with, yes, I can do something else. Problem is this awareness does translate in action. I continue with my habit nevertheless. What is the next step to awareness? The next step to awareness is actually fully knowing it. You see, we think we know our habits, but actually we don't. We know them on the side. We know them superficially. And I would say what mindfulness is really good about, that I think is really good with mindfulness, is that mindfulness helps us to inhabit the whole experience, the whole habit. How does it feel in the head? What am I seeing in my head? How does it feel in the body? You see, I used to be a little kind of a fiery person, a tendency to be a little angry. And I made a little progress when I, instead of thinking this is terrible to be angry, I should not be angry, a Buddhist is not angry or whatever. When finally, once I had a little kind of argument with somebody, then I could not continue it because I had to work. I was cooking for a conference. And suddenly becoming aware as I was working that I was kind of, kind of cutting the carrots in a dangerous way. And then I thought, wait a minute, what is going on right now? So I went in the body and it was shaking, shaking. And then I thought, why am I doing this to myself? I mean, she's not doing it. I am doing it. And then it went just to see the fullness of it. And then the second thing I went to is I went into my mind. What was I doing with my mind? And my mind was going, I am right. She's wrong. I'm right. She's wrong. And then I thought, but she must think exactly the same way. In the opposite way, of course. And then I just thought it was funny. And then I let it be and I cut my carrots. So to me, in a way, uh, the mindfulness is going to help us over time to really, but it takes time to really know what do I think? How do I think it? What do I feel? How do I feel? How do I sense it? How do I react to it? It takes time. It takes time. So I think that's where patience actually comes in. Patience. Until one day we think, why am I causing this pain to myself? Why am I causing this pain to others? To me, that's also one of the key points. When we really, in a way, we need to understand the suffering. We need to understand the second characteristic. Instead of going into the meaning of it, we experience pain and we go into the meaning of it. 
But here, we really go into the experience of it. How does it feel? How might the other person feel? And then when you really know the suffering of it, generally, I mean, generally as an intelligent person, a kind of like self-preserving, self-caring person, we suddenly think, hmm, I don't want to continue with this. I don't want to continue with this pain. Then uh, a long one. Uh, okay, this has been very helpful as equanimity is something I have struggled with. During the meditation, I was being distracted, but thought of having more breakfast. I made myself something different that was very nutritious, but also very tasty. So I was feeling pulled to have more, but I was able to respond with accepting the pull to have more, seeing and knowing that it was in part of my body wanting more nourishment, mostly a create craving for more pleasurable taste. Then I creatively engaged with it by deciding to allow an hour since I ate for the feeling to settle for my body to digest the nourishment it had already received and then to reassess. This felt like a balanced and stable response that dealt with the situation and the distraction seized. Perfect. I mean, this is perfect. This is what I mean by creative engagement. This is what I mean by creative awareness. So equanimity is to be in balance and stable with what arrives. But what if but if what arrives is really not pleasant, how to engage creatively with it? That's the thing. In a way, personally, I feel creative awareness, equanimity, is actually about acceptance and transformation. And then this is in a way what we cultivate, what we bring into being over time, bhavana, to know which one it is. So sometimes we just accept, and through the acceptance, we are either peaceful with it or we accept it because we cannot change it. You know, I remember many years ago when a friend of ours became very ill with cancer, we went to visit him in the hospice and he was totally out of it. And there was nothing we could do. The only thing you could do is just be there. It's just be there with equanimity. So there, there was really nothing to do, but Actually, you could still do being equanimous with him in his suffering, in his confusion. But at all the time, you have to do something. So it's what I call transforming. So in a way, it's kind of in a way over time, this is what we learn. Sometimes we have to accept because we cannot change it internally or externally. And then we have to wait to see Will the condition change or not? Because this is also sometimes independent of us. And then all the time we think, oh no, wait a minute. Either this is painful for me, either this is painful for them, but I have to do something. And I mean, just this as a funny aside, like, you know, many years ago I was in Bristol in England and with two of my friends, same age, you know, little kind of, getting old ladies, maybe, I mean, we are a little younger, in our 50s. So three little old, three little middle-aged lady. And then we hear some commotion and we turn around and we see two guys beating each other up on near the pavement. They're by bicycle. They, so we 
three of us look at each other and said, this is not right. So we go there and said, stop, you must not fight. And they look at us like these three ladies telling them not to fight. So they're so surprised, they stopped. And then one of us said, you know, you must read, you must, you know, kind of deal with this in a kind of, you know, useful, harmonious, kind of, you know, non-violent way. They're looking at us like, you know, what are these women? And then they went in separate way and hopefully did not fight back somewhere else. So on the moment we thought, this is not on. We could not go just look on equanimously, oh, well, you know, violence. No, no, we decided we, have, we must do something about this. So we did it. So in a way, it's kind of like at time you have to do, you have to do something fast. At time, it might take time to change the situation. So I think this, we really, it's kind of like, uh, I would say part of the fun that actually there is no try and tested formula and it's really kind of according to condition and circumstances. Then, but yes, of course, we, with whatever situation, it will become easier to be creative if we can find some groundedness. If there can be some place within oneself where we can find some groundedness. And then it will be easier to be creative than if you feel totally agitated. Of course, of course. And if there is more balance, of course. Then during the meditation practice, I noticed as my experience deepened, being aware of contact, of closing and touch. At this point, my awareness was drawn to seeing. I noticed a touch, a bee touching a salvia plant outside. The touch was soft and gentle perhaps even insignificant, like the clothing next to my skin. But it struck me that it is everything as well. So holding both this tonality was interesting. I could feel the enormity of it, excitement, profound, and the ordinariness of it, using my breath and connection to be balanced. Can you talk about this more of holding both? I'm thinking it might be like the liquid gold. You expressed it so well that I cannot add anything to that. I think this is one of the quality of, in a way, of equanimity, that at the same time, we can be really stable, really grounded, really ordinary, really being there. And at the same time, you have this feeling of spaciousness, that you, know, you have this feeling that there is no grasping anywhere. It's such a beautiful feeling when we're not grasping anywhere. And then we can see the ordinariness of it. But then we can see the beauty, the wonder of, in a way, being alive. I mean, that's what my teacher used to say all the time. I mean, you know, your life rests upon a single breath. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it extraordinary? And at the same time, it's very ordinary. So no, thank you for your comment. I often struggle, particularly when meditating on my own to access the creative awareness brightness. But when it's there, with the help of teaching like yours, it feels like crossing a very thin membrane and still the effect is enormous. Is there such a switch to creative awareness? In a way, yes. I think to me, in a way, what is interesting for me in terms of tonality 
is do I look at the tonality of the contact, then specific contact, specific tonality, which is often habituated, or do I look at the tonality of the mindfulness itself, which has a really different quality. And I find that interesting in meditation because then you have, you have this, again, there is this stability and with this spaciousness and it has a little special feel. And my feeling is that's what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about actually having this different type of equanimity. And I also think that's what he was talking about when he talked about equanimity as being like pure gold, that it was very malleable, very flexible, and at the same time, very bright. Because I think if we equate equanimity with just, you know, with this kind of like flatness, I think that's a problem. Often we equate equanimity with a certain flatness, which I think is a little strange. And instead, here the Buddha said, no, equanimity is really bright, is really supple. And to me, this is often what we can experience not all the time. And I think the difference is in a way how much grasping there is. If there is no grasping, we will experience this quality. As soon as there is a little grasping, poof, the quality will be a little different. So to me, but then how you, how you don't grasp, you know, you have to let it happen. So at one level you cultivate it and at another level it's just there. So it's kind of, there is this kind of strange element of, you know, when there is more grasping or there is a little more selfing, then the quality is less there. And then if we just are present to it, experience it, then we have, that quality. So in a way, that's why they say sometimes, you know, the song tradition, they say sometimes it's just like a very thin sheet of paper, you know, and you think like, you know, it's such a great obstacle. And then it's just a little veil that if we just let's go, then we can experience it. We can benefit from it. Because personally, I think it's, it's kind of more like it has, I would say it has a healing quality to experience ourselves as not grasping, experience ourselves with that peacefulness, that tenderness, and things of that nature. I think it means we're not always selfish, agitated, but we can have this beautiful moment, which will help us when we are stressed and agitated. So, is an equanimity really true love? Of course. Of course, of course, I think to see, that's why I think equanimity sometimes is giving, given a kind of a strange detached quality, which I think on the contrary, uh, equanimity will really kind of help with what I would call creative wise love, really be kind of like a, the ground of that. So, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.